Section 9 of Gallipoli Diary. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. Gallipoli Diary by John Graham Gillum. Section 9. June 2nd to 14th, 1915. June 2nd. After issue, go down on beach to our train office, which is now dug in the side of the cliff. It has twice been moved, each time further and further round the cliff on the right of the beach looking seawards. When shelling is on, our train office soon becomes full of passing officers, reminding me of a crowded pavilion at a cricket match when rain stops the play. Just as the pavilion empties as the rain stops, so does our train office when the shelling stops. Then, all the morning, there calls a continual stream of officers, Royal Engineers, Ordnance, Supply, Artillery, and Regimental, presenting their representative indents for transport, which the adjutant has difficulty with, in mathematically fitting in the detailing of transport to satisfy their demands with available wagons. It is a job that requires tact and organization. Officers also call who come just to pass the time of day and exchange rumors, or beach gossip, as we call it. The circulation of rumors is the best entertainment that we have, and though 95% of them are estranged from truth by a large margin, yet life would be doubly as dull as it is without them. They are always listened to with great interest, though before they are heard, listeners know they are going to be miles off the target of truth and if a man who has achieved a reputation for carrying with him the latest and most interesting beach gossip fails any morning in producing any, he causes really keen disappointment. This morning we hear that the Turks are starved, have no clothes, are almost at the last gasp for ammunition, and only require one more hard knock before they retreat precipitously to lines which they have prepared well beyond the slopes on the other side of Achibaba. The Navy then tells us that once Achibaba is in our hands, we command the Narrows. Chanak Fort will be shelled to a pile of bricks and stones. The fleet will make a dash up the straits into the Marmora, and will arrive before Constantinople in three days. After a heavy bombardment of this city, the goal of our ambitions, we will attack the Turkish army, now starved and demoralized beyond recovery. They will be beaten and will make unconditional surrender. The peninsula will be ours. The Dardanelles will be open. Russia and the Allies will link hands. And the war will end six months after in glorious victory for our cause and confusion to our enemies. We drink in minor rumors day by day that are given as irrefutable evidence in support of these prophecies. We are buoyed up in hope and spirits thereby, and ourselves spread the rumors to those of our friends who still remain pessimistic. I go up to the main supply depot, and there, having by now been given a reputation for carrying good and juicy rumors, I cheer them up by the news that Achi will be ours by June 30th. Smart, one of the officers there, who was in the retreat from Mons, makes me a bet, and the stake is a nice ruler that he has on his desk. I promptly book the bet, 
I go up to Brigade and have tea and supply them with the latest rumors. June 3rd. It is very windy today and is blowing nearly a gale, and wind on the tip of this peninsula is an unpleasant element to be up against. In consequence, the beach is smothered with dust, and clouds of it fly in all directions, covering everybody and everything. While issuing, shells burst on the crest of the high ground at the back of the beach, steadily all the time, and nearer inland, puffs of shrapnel are visible. They cannot reach us here with shrapnel, thank goodness. Shrapnel is so comprehensive. A lucky shell comes to within ten yards of our depot, kills a man, a passer-by, outright, wounds a sailor, and slightly wounds my butcher in the knee. I ride up to brigade with Phillips. General Doran shows us map of our objective, and carefully marks thereon where rations are to be dumped tomorrow night for tomorrow is to be the day of an attack upon our part to take Achi. If successful, then, the beginning of the end of the show will be in sight. No news from outside world, and a great scarcity of papers. Reading a paper about a month old is now a great luxury. In the evening, Williams and Phillips and myself borrow a boat from a military liaison officer and have a short row round. It makes splendid exercise, and the scenes on shore are very interesting. Why did not we think of it before? When they shell the beach, all we have to do is get into a boat and row out to sea, and then watch the fun. Surely a submarine would not trouble to torpedo us, and it would be a shell with our name and address on that would hit us. We pass a submarine, British, marked B-9, a very small one. An officer is in the conning tower and says good evening to us. We chat, and he invites us on board. Two sailors hold our little boat while we clumsily climb onto the submarine's slippery back. We climb down a perpendicular iron ladder, through a hole not much larger than a coal chute to a cellar under a street. Inside we find only one chamber, awfully cramped and small. At one end of this sleep the men, and at the other two officers. The chamber provides quarters for men and officers alike, and engine room, ward room, and ante room all in one, like Dan Leno's one-roomed house. In Dan Leno's words, if you want to go into the drawing room, you stay where you are. I am shown the working of the engines, and try to look wisely at the intricate host of levers and brass things, but really, can understand nothing at all of what the officer is talking about. I am shown how a torpedo is fired. You pull a thing out and she shoots. Phillips appears to know all about it, though, but he doesn't really. I look through the periscope, turn the lens round, and suddenly, before my eyes, I see V Beach and Sedel Bar in vivid detail. What joy it must be to spot a Hun battleship and see her effectively hit. The officer then invites us to sit down and call for drinks. I gasp. We never heard of such things on shore. An attentive army batman, smiling benevolently, brings along about half a dozen bottles and glasses. The officer apologizes for not having much choice. Is he pulling our legs? What perfectly charming beings these naval fellows are. I choose sherry. 
Williams gets chatty about the Middlesex yeomanry. The Middlesex yeomanry always comes into Williams' conversation when he gets chatty, but I can't connect this regiment with submarines at the moment. I have two glasses, and we rise to go. Our perfectly delightful host expresses regret that we must go, and invites us again in the near future. Up the perpendicular iron steps we climb. Phillips, leading, puts his heavy boot in my face. It seems a long way up those steps. Up in the cool air, with the breeze blowing in my face, the deck of the submarine seems much narrower than when we first came on board. I look at the little boat, gently heaving in the water alongside, and take one cautious step onto one of its seats, and with one foot in the boat and one on the submarine, I turn to thank my host again. The little boat falls with the swell of the sea, and I promptly sit down very hard into her. All aboard, we row back merrily. Here the two shells have arrived on the beach during our absence. Shells? Pooh, that's nothing. We don't worry about shells now. I swear I had only two sherries, but I am very empty inside, and the cool air, after a stuffy atmosphere, yes, even a padre might feel like that. June 4th. I awake and rise early. Today is the battle, and tonight we shall be probably feeding our troops in or beyond Crithia. Today will probably be a great day for our arms. I get my issuing over early and ride up to brigade headquarters and see Usher, asking him if he has any further instructions. All the arrangements are complete, and I hope that I shall have to take the rations up to or beyond Crithia, for then we shall have tasted complete victory. I see General Doran, who is hard at work. Two officers of the Egyptian army arrive and talk a while with me. I learn that they have landed only this morning. They are dressed very smartly, polished Sam Brown, revolver, smart tunic, and breeches and boots but I think they are making a mistake. They look like the pictures of a military tailor's advertisement. Most officers of the infantry dress like the men to lessen the chances of an enemy sniper getting them. I get back to W Beach at 10.30 a.m. and see the Implacable and Albion coming slowly in with destroyers and submarines all around each ship, jealously guarding them from submarines' attacks. A French battleship, I think the Saint-Louis, is off V Beach. Destroyers are on the patrol as usual, searching for the dreaded submarine enemy. Three hospital ships are now in. 11 a.m. The French 75 start the music, bursting out into a roar of anger. Shortly after, all our shore batteries join in, and the 60-pounders make our ears feel as if they would burst until we get used to it. The bombardment increases. The battleships and destroyers now join in with all their guns. The noise is infernal after the quiet that we have been used to. I go up to the high ground at the back of W Beach, lie down in a trench, and watch the show through strong glasses. Only a few are with me in the trench. Next to me is Bettelheimer, our liaison officer. He speaks Turkish like a native and is a very charming and decent old boy tremendous shelling now going on, and it seems to grow more and more intense. Hundreds of shells bursting along the Turkish positions. 
Turkish artillery replies furiously, mostly with shrapnel, all along our trenches. No shells come on the beaches. Hundreds of white puffs of shrapnel burst all along the line, and fountain-like spurts of black and yellow smoke, followed by columns of earth, are thrown into the air, ending in a fog of drifting smoke and dust. 12 noon. The bombardment slackens and almost dies away suddenly, and I hear a faint cheer, but searching the line carefully with my glasses can see no signs of life. After a short pause the bombardment bursts again, even more intensely, and then slackens, and our guns increase the range. I can see three armored cars on the right of our center, which before I had not noticed, one behind the other, each one a short distance to the right of the one in front, moving slowly along the flat ground on either side of the Sedel Bar Road, and they actually pass over our front line and creep up to the Turkish front, driving backwards. They halt, and I see the spurts of flame coming from their armored turrets as their machine guns open fire. After about ten minutes I see the car furthest behind move back to our line, now driving forwards, and after a while the remaining two follow. Our shells burst thickly, smothering the Turkish first and second lines and all the way up the slopes of Achi Baba. I see our men in the center leap from the trenches, and the sun glistens on their bayonets. I see them run on in wave after wave, some falling and remaining lying on the grass like sacks of potatoes. I can see nothing on the left. Now I see the French on the hill on the right of our line, and the hill is covered with dark figures rushing forward. The din and roar continues, and I am called away to my dump. 2 p.m. Rumor hath it that we have taken the first two lines of trenches. The armored cars return to their dugout garage, one with one man wounded inside. 4.30 p.m. Prisoners come marching down the beach under escort. Big hardy chaps in ill-fitting khaki clothes and many with cloth helmets on their heads, looking rather like the paper hats I used to make when a kid. 6 p.m. I go up to see the quartermasters, to pass on instructions that rations tonight will be dumped at the same place as last, namely at the ruined house in front of Pink Farm. And so we cannot have advanced much. I meet a wounded Royal Naval Division officer, and he tells me that the French have been forced to give way on the right, and that his division immediately on their left, having advanced, are, in consequence, rather hung between the devil and the deep sea. I stop and look through Butler's strong telescope, and see in front of Crithia before a green patch, which we on the beach call the cricket pitch, little figures digging in hard at a new line. 9 p.m. Rifle fire still intense and shore batteries going at it all out. The battleships have gone home to bed. Achi Baba looks more formidable than ever. 11 p.m. Steady rifle fire going on. We have advanced some 500 yards in center and are holding the ground one. The French have not advanced. I learn that when our bombardment suddenly stopped shortly after noon and when our infantry raised a cheer, the enemy stood right up on the fire steps of their parapets, preparing to meet their charge. Our infantry did not leave their trenches, 
Instead, our machine guns got on to the Turks, waiting exposed, and bagged many by their fire. June 5th, 6 a.m. Steady rifle firing still continues, having gone on all night. Noon. Rode a French submarine with Phillips, Williamson, and Foley, and after pulling round, looking interested, are invited on board. Phillips has one foot on the slippery back of the submarine and one foot on the boat rocking in the sea when a dog comes rushing along the deck of the submarine barking furiously. Pained expression on Phillips face a study. Dog held back by a French sailor. Most interesting on board the submarine. Engines and mechanical gear a marvelous piece of work. Very interesting looking through the periscope. Two charming officers, having lunch in a dear little cabin, talked to us. Submarine four times as big as the British one that we went aboard two days ago. Hear that Prosser and Wyman, friends of mine in the Hampshires, have been hit and are on hospital ships. Damned fine chaps. Hear later that Bush of Worcesters, another friend and a splendid fellow, has gone, blown to bits by a shell while leading a charge yesterday. Fine man. He had been wounded and had been awarded the military cross at the landing. Also, the two Jippy officers who reported at brigade headquarters when I was there yesterday have gone, killed while leading their new companies. This happens after every battle. One makes friends, such fine friends, and one is always suddenly losing them, leaving such gaps as sometimes makes one wish that one could follow them but it is against tradition of the service to be morbid about it, and so we carry on, knowing that those who have gone west would, if they were still with us, be cheery, brave, cool, and efficient at their respective jobs. 4 p.m. Go up to Brigade Headquarters with O'Hara. Leave the horses at Pink Farm and walk to Headquarters. Find them all up at an observation post, just behind the firing line, which has moved forward after yesterday's battle. The commanding Royal Engineers, 29th Division, joins us, a most unconcerned individual. He goes on up across country. O'Hara waits a bit to give some instructions and then goes on, and I follow. After a bit across the country, with a few overs flying about, overs are bullets which have missed their target, but which are still traveling at a high velocity, we dip down into a gully and follow its winding path for about ten minutes to the observation post, where commanding Royal Engineers and the rest of the staff have already arrived, bullets fairly whizzing overhead. Usher tells me to step closer to the side, which I promptly do, on account of a few bullets which are on the descent. Very interesting there. Telephone and signalers busy, and orderlies arriving and departing. A few shells scream overhead. We all have tea and chat. Thompson looks rather ill and worried. All the time we are having tea, there is a constant ping of bullets over the dugout. Look through observation hole and have a perfect view of yesterday's battlefield. The Worcesters advanced and are holding their position. They are exposed to enfilading fire as well as frontal fire from the Turks, but are digging in to protect themselves. They are very near Krithia, digging on that green patch of land which we call the cricket pitch. Krithia looks very formidable the closer one gets to it. Turkish trenches are very deep, 
with good dugouts for sleeping and very deep, wide communication trenches. Hence, we hardly ever see a Turk. Their firing line and sleeping dugouts are actually boarded. 11.30 p.m. As I turn into bed, there is firing all along the line. Turkish counter-attack going on. Our casualties yesterday very heavy, but Turks colossal. The Gobin fired over to us today with not much damage. Shells did not reach the beach. I hear that Colonel Williams, or General as I have up to now been calling him, on account of his having acted as Brigadier of the 88th, up to the arrival of General Doran, was wounded in yesterday's battle. On General Doran's arrival, he went to the 2nd Hampshire's, his regiment, and took command. When the moment for the infantry attack arrived, they leapt over and, in an incredibly short space of time, had taken their first objective. Colonel Williams, with his adjutant, then followed over to make his headquarters in the newly won trench. On inspecting it and making arrangements for the attack on the second objective, he came back to his old headquarters to telephone the result, an orderly accompanying him. Halfway back, a Turk leapt up from behind a bush, ten yards away from him, and fired his rifle, the bullet instantly killing Colonel Williams' orderly. Colonel Williams drew his revolver, took deliberate aim, and the Turk, also taking deliberate aim, leveled his rifle at the same time. For a second, an old-time duel might have been taking place in the middle of an historic battleground, which was lately no man's land. Both fire. The Turk falls dead, and Colonel Williams is wounded in the left arm. That Turk was a brave man, but I think Colonel Williams is a braver. June 6th, 7 a.m. Shells come over on east side of the beach from a four-gun Turkish battery, and big stuff, too, about six inch. 7.30 a.m. More arrive in middle of our camp on the west side of the battery. We take cover under a cliff. I, wanting to get down to train office, go up a cliff and just about to descend the steps when the shriek of one is heard, by which I could tell it is close to me. I fall flat into a hole on one side of the cliff, and it passes over the cliff and bursts on the beach, killing Gunner Sergeant Major. Ugh, how they shriek! Heavy firing continued on left all night. We lost a trench, but regained it. A Turkish padre is a prisoner on the beach today. He looks rather a dear old chap with quite a benevolent expression. 6 p.m. I go up to brigade with Carver in the afternoon, leaving our horses at Pink Farm. My old mare knows Pink Farm well now. When I dismounted today and let go the reins, she walked over to the tree that I always tie her to, under cover of the farm, quite on her own. At headquarters, bullets are zipping over more frequently than I have ever known them to do before. Waiting to see General Doran, who should I see strolling calmly across the country but my friend Dent of the Inniskillens. The last time we had met was at a gramophone dance at some common friend's home in Edgebaston. We have a chat about those days, and ask each other for news of the partners we used to dance with. All the time, ping, ping, bullets fly about. But as he does not seem to mind, I take my cue from him and try not to mind either. Besides, it would be rather nice to get a cushy one in the arm. 11 p.m. We are being shelled by a battery from Kumkali. This is the first time we have been shelled at night. 
They did not reach our side of the beach, and as Phillips says he can read the mind of the Turkish gunner, he is always saying this, and I have great confidence in him, and that we are off the target. I go to sleep without anxiety. June 7th. Heavy gun with high explosive kicking up a devil of a row all day, but not reaching the beach, bursting in the valley on the way to brigade headquarters. Plenty of artillery dueling all day. Asiatic battery fires on transports and hits one several times, setting her alight, and she now has a heavy list on. French crew rush to boats and clear off quick. British torpedo destroyer goes alongside, puts crew on board the transport, and they put out the fire. All transports move further out to sea, and Turkish battery shuts up. I have to feed the prisoners, and a party of them come up to our depot under a guard to draw rations. Transport is provided by two general service wagons. There are ten of them in the party, and one of their non-commissioned officers. They fall in in two ranks, and wherever I move, they follow me with their eyes. I then motion to their non-commissioned officer to load up a certain number of boxes. He gives an order in Turkish, and they load up in remarkably quick time. They are then fallen in by their non-commissioned officer, and one of them, who is rather dilatory, is pushed into his place by the others. Marching in front of their general service wagons, they go back to their barbed wire enclosure. They appear most anxious to do the right thing. Many of them were raggedly clothed, with their boots almost out at heel. No shelling during night. June 8th. Hardly any Turkish shelling this morning. Went up to brigade headquarters. While there, Usher, the brigade major, shows me the wires that were received and sent to and from the brigade headquarters during the battle of June 4th, and they make interesting reading, telling a grim story in short, pithy, matter-of-fact sentences. Troops now consolidating line and making it firm. The Lancashire Fusiliers successfully took a trench last night and straightened the line somewhat, Askold popping off on the Asiatic side to silence Turkish batteries. My friend Dent of the Innes Killens hit last night by a spent bullet in the gully, but I think not seriously. Grogan of the King's Own Scottish Borderers, a delightful chap, was killed by a shell on June 4th. Such a splendid fellow. My mare, looking very fit now, gets quite frisky when I ride out to the front every morning, and is getting better at jumping across trenches. June 9th. Blowing a great gale down the peninsula, and the dust is perfectly awful. I have never experienced such a wind, and yet an aeroplane goes up, but for a bit is absolutely stationary, and soon has to land. Turks in a very strong position on the left. Country lends itself naturally to defenses. Ride up to line with Phillips and Way. Coming back, Way's horse landed out at my mare, kicking me in the shin, making a nasty place. My leg is now bandaged, and I limp rather badly. Very little firing today. Asiatic battery woke us up at 5.30 a.m. and tried to bombard transports, all shells falling into the sea. Rode out to sea and went on board submarine B-10 with Phillips and saw North. Actually had a drink. Also, they have a gramophone, and it was absolutely gorgeous listening to familiar music, carrying us back to our past peaceful existence once more. As we go up on deck to take our leave, 
A torpedo boat circles round us, a signaler wagging to us. The signal is taken by one of the crew of the submarine, transmitted to the commander, and reads, Anything we can do for you? He replies, No thanks. Any news? And the torpedo boat destroyer signals back some news that has just come through of progress made by our force in Mesopotamia on the road to Baghdad. We are told that daily torpedo boat destroyers come along and offer to do little jobs for the officers on board of the submarine, and sometimes send over delicacies such as roast, fowl, hot, etc. June 10th, 5.30 a.m. Shells popping off at shipping again, and one hits the beach. Also, the Turks in front get very busy for four hours bombarding our position, I believe that they really think that they are going to push us into the sea. 5.30 p.m. I walk along the road at the foot of the cliff towards X Beach. The road is now a good one, and the transport is making continual traffic up and down. It is very convenient, for transport can move not only under cover from the enemy, but in safety to a certain extent, for up to now but few shells drop over the cliff onto this road. I know a place, however, from which they can shell this road and the slope of the cliff, and that is on their extreme right, overlooking the sea. From there they can look along parts of the road and side of the cliff, which is in view of their trenches, though other parts by the coast, jutting out a little for small distances, are under perfect cover, and, in fact, quite safe. Passing the Greek labor camp, I continue my walk to X Beach, which is about half as wide as W and a quarter as deep. Instead of the ground sloping up gently at the back, as is the case at W Beach, it rises at a steep angle to the top of the cliffs. Unlike W Beach, it comes constantly under shrapnel shell fire, but receives very few heavy shells and is far more under cover than is W. The road to Gully Beach at the foot of the cliffs of X Beach is not finished yet, and is in a very rough state. Just before I reach Gully Beach, I come upon brigade headquarters, dug in at the side and foot of the cliff. The battalions are dug in, in as much regimental order as possible, along the sides of the cliff, which are higher here than further down the peninsula, and more under cover. Shells now and again burst, shrapnel chiefly, on the top of the cliff, and a few come over and fall with a big splash into the sea but none burst on the slopes of the cliff. I hear, though, that one man yesterday was cut in half by a shell while bathing. A horrid sight. This camp on the slopes of the cliff is now the rest camp of the division, and while two brigades are in the line, one brigade is at rest. At rest, that is, from bullets, and, if they keep under the cliff, from shells, but not at rest from digging fatigues. The road has to be made, and so have the dugouts on the side of the cliff. They get good bathing, though, and bathing out here beats any that I have ever struck. I talked to the only two officers left of those who were with the Worcesters in England. They appear very breezy and bright. We are hard at work building our men's bivouac, which is in the form of a funk hole. We are digging it in the side of the cliff from the top, and it will be entered by about ten steps leading down to a terrace, which will run on the outside of the house, dug into the cliff's side, under a sloping roof made with a sailcloth. It will be so situated that, 
should shells come our way, they will either burst on top, where our old bivouac still is, or fly over the cliff and burst in the road below or in the sea. We are modeling ours on a bivouac of some Royal Naval Division officers about 50 yards further up the cliff side. On their terrace they have all their meals, including dinner at night, which is a luxury, with the sound of the waves washing against the road below and the view of Imbros in the distance. In their dugout house at night they go to sleep with more feeling of security than I have at present. I share a tent with Phillips. Just as I am turning in, Way comes in to say that Asia has just started sending over high explosives. None reach us, but they make a devil of a row, and I fall asleep feeling rather uncomfortable. June 12th. Woke up at 5.30 a.m. by shelling. Shells from Asia nearly reaching a big transport that had come in overnight on the opposite of our bivy. Wind and flies as bad as ever and it is getting very hot. Dust smothering everything. Turks reported to be sick of the war and rumored to be individually seeking a chance to give themselves up. But it is still a long, long way to Achi Baba. That must be taken first. Cliff on the west side up to Gully Beach, covered with troops, looking like a lot of khaki ants from a distance, all back resting. They have to keep well under cover of cliffs, as they would soon be shelled. Major Lang, Worcesters, killed in the last battle. He was the officer I saw in the trenches when I went up for Bush's letters. Bush also killed. This side of the war is the most difficult to bear. Just heard the brigade are moving back to trenches after three days' rest. June 13th. Perfect day. Wind dropped, but still a slight breeze. Have got into our new bivy on side of cliff. Went up to brigade headquarters in front of Pink Farm. All well. Here they are moving forward tomorrow three hundred yards. Creeping nearer to our goal. General Doran gone back to England ill after last battle. Lieutenant Colonel Cayley, late officer commanding of the Worcesters, now acting brigadier general. Asiatic Annie popped off and dropped shells nicely on Crithia Road, on spot that I and my mare had passed five minutes before and she sends some nasty ones. Also, she is dropping high explosives in French camp in Morto Bay. I don't think I shall bathe there for a bit. 5.30 a.m. French aeroplane falls into sea. Pilot and observer can be seen sitting on top of wing. Destroyers come to the rescue, and also several motorboats. Officer picked up, and aeroplane taken in tow. End of section 9.